Working one day in the musty basement of Oxford University Press, which is where the dictionary archive is stored, I came across a small black book tied with cream ribbon. And that book led me on an extraordinary journey. With its yellowing pages and its disintegrating binding, it's, it was actually the kind of find that academics dream of because that small book turned out to be the 150-year-old address book of Sir James Murray, the, long, the longest serving editor of the Oxford English Dictionary. Today, the dictionary is acknowledged as an astounding work of scholarship. It contains more than half a million headwords, and it takes up 20 mighty volumes, which are behind me. And it's a familiar sight on shelves of libraries and studies around the world. But what's less well known is that far from being created by a team of learned dons and professors, the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, and I'll now refer to it as the OED, the first edition, which took 70 years to write, it began in 1858 and finished in 1928, it was, in fact, a crowdsourced project. It was the Wikipedia of its day. It was assembled and curated by a vast army of ordinary people. But we've never known exactly who those people were until now. It was those dedicated, unpaid, and I soon discovered highly ex um, eccentric volunteers who were painstakingly listed in James Murray's address book. And it was their personal stories that I've been on a quest discovering for the past eight years. And what I discovered was quite a revelation. Three murderers and at least four inhabitants of psychiatric hospitals are listed as contributors in that address book alongside a colorful cast of families, factory inspectors, engineers, vegetarian vicars, suffragists. I think Joe, um, Rosie will be happy about that. There are lots of suffragists and social justice campaigners in James Murray's address book. Through my research, I found how Murray, a humble, kindly and devoted family man who left school at 14 with no formal qualifications, he meticulously organized his thousands of volunteers, at least I discovered that there were thousands, until finding these address books. We thought that there were probably several hundred, but now we know that there were several thousand. And he recruited them globally through advertisements in newspapers and journals over a 36-year period from when he took the reins of the dictionary in 1879 until his death in 1915. James Murray died on the letter T without ever knowing whether his dictionary would be finally finished. It was completed 13 years later in 1928. His volunteers were invited to search any book that they had to hand and to look out for unusual and in interesting words and to mail them to the editor examples of those words from those books by writing out the quotation from the book on a small four by six inch piece of paper. These were called slips. When Murray started writing the dictionary, he worked on it inside his house. And 
All the books and papers and slips were crowding out his poor wife, Ada, and their 11 children. And Ada said, James, you have to get out of this house, build a shed out in the garden, which he did. He built this corrugated shed, which he nicknamed the scriptorium. And it was there in the scriptorium that he, with three or four editors, uh, they beavered away on the dictionary, as I said, for 36 years. And there's a photo just behind me of the scriptorium. There is Murray working on the dictionary with these men beside him. That is the classic photo of Murray writing the dictionary. But these dictionary people, these other people, they're not in that photo. Well, at least you think that they're not at, at first. But if you look closely, you can see the thousands of slips sticking out of the pigeonholes. That's the dictionary people. This shed, the scriptorium, was partially built into the ground. And so therefore, in winter, it was dank and cold, and the editors had to wrap their legs in newspaper to stay warm. All the while, the dictionary people, and I like to think of them as academia's unsung heroes, they carried on reading, researching, writing, and sending in words. So many people sent in words that Royal Mail had to put a red pillar box outside Murray's house at 78 Banbury Road, Oxford, which is just around the corner from where I am now. Yes, they put um, the red pillar box there to cope with all the post, and it's still there today. Now his house has a little blue plaque on it saying that it's James Murray's house. So using James Murray's address book, I wanted to find out everything that I could about these people. After finding that first ad address book, I found two others belonging to James Murray. And then the following summer in the Bodleian Library, I found three more address books belonging to his predecessor, Frederick Furnival. So using these six address books, I wanted to shed light on these people to finally give them credit for the incredible work that they had done. I spent, as I said, eight years researching where they lived, what they did with their lives, who they loved, the books they read, and the words that they sent in to the, to the dictionary. Some of the people have remained a mystery to me, despite me trawling through censuses and marriage registers and death certificates. Um, but many more have come to life with such force that it's as though they've been calling out for attention for years. So I now know that there are 3,000 people who helped create the dictionary. There were far more women than expected, far more Americans than we thought. They included a president of Yale, a vicar who was found dead in the cupboard of his church, a female astronomer, the first female astronomer, Elizabeth Brown, and the inventor, a lot of inventors. This was a time in the late 19th century where people were very in inventive. So there's the inventor of the sewerage pipe and also the inventor of the tennis net ad adjuster. Most of these volunteers were not the scholarly elites who we might expect, but rather they were the amateurs and the autodidacts. They were the people on the fringes for whom this project was giving them access to a prestigious academic world that was otherwise denied to them. People contributed from all around the world, from Sri Lanka, Australia, New Zealand, from even the Congo, from Japan. They included a woman, a young woman who was just 18, and her name was Margaret Murray 
And she began getting up really early in the morning, moving to the roof of her house in Calcutta, where she would read Indian travelers' tales, writing out slips for Murray. And over a seven-year period, she sent in over 5,000 slips, which provided words that only made it into the dictionary because of her, such as spicera, which is someone skilled in the nature of spices or drugs, and chinch, which is a word for a bed bug, and an obsolete sense of breeze, meaning the specific cool breeze that blows from the sea by day on tropical coasts. Margaret actually went on to become an eminent archaeologist, the first female Egyptologist. She spent, but she came to that late. She she only discovered that that whole world when, when she was 31. And she lectured at UCL in uh, in London, and she actually became an, an authority on witchcraft. And indeed, it was reported by friends that if she ever disapproved of an academic appointment at UCL, she would try to reverse it by casting a spell in one of her saucepans. The best contributor was Thomas Austin from Hitchin in, in Hertfordshire, who submitted an astounding 165 and 61, uh, 165,061 slips over a 10 year period. In fact, the top four contributors, in, including Thomas Austin, all had stints in psychiatric hospitals. He began as a friend of the dictionary and frequently used to join James Murray for for tea, but he eventually became quite enraged. He was enraged that he wasn't paid for for his for his work, and he sent a violently abusive letter to to Murray, which I happened to find at the Huntington Library in California. And the two stopped speaking to one another, but amazingly, Austin kept on writing slips and sending in words. But not everyone was as devoted as Austin. There were also hopeless con con contributors. And Murray's address book is really funny because beside a lot of people, he, he would write little little notes and 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 frequently there are there are notes such as no good, nothing done, gone, threw up. And Eleanor Marx, the daughter of Karl Marx, fell into that category. But I'll be because I'm short for time, I'll leave it for you to read about her in in the book. Um, people seem to be motivated by different agendas. So there was a Mrs. Anna Wetherill, who was an anti-slavery activist in Philadelphia, who hid slaves in her house. And her contributions included the words ab abhorrent and abolition. Murray ensured, actually, that he had the top specialists of the day in his address book, who, who he could go to to check his definitions of tricky scientific words. So one of these was James Dixon, who was a retired surgeon who helped the dictionary with medical terms. It, it was he who unwisely advised Murray to delete the entry for appendicitis because it was, according to Dixon, just another itis word. And he said, if you started on that road, you would never finish. 
But the omission actually turned out to be a major embarrassment when in 1902, the coronation of Edward VII was postponed because the king was suffering from appendicitis. Suddenly, everyone was using the word, but no one could find it in the dictionary. Dixon, Dixon was also the contributor who advised Murray to include the, the C word, but he strangely absolutely drew the line with a word which he said was considered so obscene that it had to be sent to Murray in a small envelope marked private inside another larger envelope. And I found this in the Bodleian Library in the Murray papers. And the word was condom, which he said, and this is what he called it, a contrivance used by fornicators to save themselves from a well-deserved clap. He mistakenly thought that the word was from French, and he wrote to Murray, everything obscene comes from France. Murray actually ended up leaving both of those words out, and you can find out why when you read the book. <laughs> Many families contributed to the dictionary together, and I imagine them gathering together around the gaslight, around a table, reading together and copying out slips. James Murray got all of his children, the whole 11 of them, busy sorting out slips, and two of Murray's daughters actually worked as editors on the dictionary in the, in the scriptorium. So Murray's house was both a workplace and his family was a workforce. My favorite dictionary person was Alexander John Ellis, who was a phonetician who helped Murray with the pronunciations in the dictionary. He invented his own spelling system for English, which he called glossotype, which Murray actually supported for a, for a, a while. And Ellis was a key, he was a key connector within the dictionary network. He brought the most people and the most influential people to the project. So he really was key to its success. He was also delightfully eccentric and in, insatiably curious about the languages of the world. He, he once wrote to a friend of his distress that he had narrowly missed meeting a genuine Icelander. He also wore a large coat, which, which he nicknamed Dreadnought, and this coat had 28 pockets. Each of them was filled with an eclectic item, nail clippers, a tuning fork, a book just in case of an emergency, and two items, which when I found out about them, they told me so much about him. One was a scone, just in case friends got peckish, and the other was a corkscrew, even though I discovered that he didn't drink alcohol himself. In fact, his favorite drink was a hot water with a dash of milk, which I thought, well, I've got to try it because I'm I'm writing about him. And actually, even though it, it looks awful, it's actually quite delicious. So that little detail about him carrying things for others just spoke of his kindness and his thoughtfulness. And it really was a recurring theme amongst the, the women and men who gave so generously of their time and skill to help the dictionary. 
So there are so many more people that I'd love to tell you about if we had time, like the young, the young medical student who sent in hundreds of science words, but sadly he became addicted to cocaine and morphine and died of an overdose in a railway station lavatory or Henry Spencer Ashby, who's definitely one of my favorites. He lived in Bloomsbury and had the world's largest collection of pornography and actually a wicked sense of humor. He used to send bundles of sex words to Murray, to Murray every, every month, but you'll have to read more to find out about those, those words. Um, so today, you know, there is a team of 75 people still working on the dictionary and they still rely on contributions from the public. And I got to meet one of those in my hometown of Brisbane, Australia. When I was when so when I first started working for Oxford Dictionary, it, it, it was my job to open the mail. And every month, this packet of slips would 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 come from a man called Mr. Chris Collier. They were eccentrically wrapped in cornflake packets with bits of dog hair stuck on them. And over a 35 year period, Mr. Mr. Collier sent in over 100,000 words, 100,000 slips. The unusual thing about them all is that they were they all came from a single source, from the Brisbane Courier-Mail newspaper. So I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. I did a quick analysis of the current dictionary, and there are now more quotations from that Courier-Mail newspaper than there are from T.S. Eliot or Virginia Woolf. Uh, and there was there is a surprise about Mr. Collier, which I won't spoil for those of you who want to read about him. But when I went to meet him, I asked him if we if he would like us to fly him over to Oxford to meet the editors and see the work of the dictionary himself. And he paused for a moment and said, oh, but I couldn't possibly just imagine all the career mails waiting for me when I got home. So this is a story of obsession, devotion, and generosity. Over the years, I've fallen in love with the dictionary people. They gave freely of their time and skill so that the bounds of the English language could be recorded for future generations. For us, I see them as the unsung heroes of the OED because without them, the dictionary simply would not exist. Thank you.